0: Welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. I'm Tracey Ainsworth from the University of New South Wales. In this podcast series, we will talk to marine experts about the marine environments that we have right on our doorsteps and what we can do to help conserve and protect these blue spaces. Hi, Peter, and a big welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Uh, Peter was the founding director of the Sydney Institute for Marine Science He's a professor of biology at the University of New South Wales and Peter you came to Australia after starting out your studies in marine science in California but you also grew up close to some of the biggest cities in the world, places like New York, Chicago, really population dense, big cities and I think that's really interesting Um, because cities are also a big part of the impact that you're having with your marine research. And um, I was really looking forward to hearing more about that research. So thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast, Pete.
1: Thanks, Tracy. Delighted to be here.
0: Um, Your research has focused a lot on seaweeds, kelp, the ecology of marine ecosystems. And a lot of that now is directed towards restoration and rehabilitation of coastal systems. But one thing that you've been um, a huge champion for over the last few years is the World Harbour Program and you're the director of that program and um, you've been championing the very urgent need to restore our harbours and marine ecosystems. Um, Some of these places are close to the biggest cities in the world and if there's anywhere in the world that blue places have an impact on so many people is those places. Blue places next to cities. Um, Can you tell us more about why these harbours are still such an important feature for marine life?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Tracy. So, um, you know, I guess when people think about the marine environment, they often think about kind of pristine or semi pristine coral atolls out in the middle of the Pacific. But in fact, you know, where most people see the marine environment is in their backyards and increasingly. Backyards for people are in cities, you know now more than 50% of the world lives in cities and so Many of those uh, Cities and mega cities in particular are along the coast shanghai new york rio de janeiro sydney And so people experience the marine and estuarine environment In their backyard in cities increasingly across the world and so if you're concerned about the conservation and use of marine spaces—you really need to be concerned about that for urban marine spaces. Um, so, increasingly, you know, I didn't necessarily start out there. Although, as you say, I grew up in big cities, um, I have increasingly become interested in that interaction between people in cities and the surrounding marine environment. So, so about five years ago. Um, we initiated the World Harbor Project through Sims, and it really developed on a bunch of work that we've been doing in Sydney Harbor and around Sims. but clearly it's a global issue. And so we started to reach out to a bunch of cities across the world and they had all the same problems. They were really interested in joining this, this bigger project and they're now, I don't know, 33, 35 partner cities across the world in every continent except Antarctica.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I think it's pretty a surprise to a lot of people that it's actually possible to to kind of rewild or bring nature back to some of these heavily urbanised spaces. But some of your research is actually looking for solutions, is that right, for for these places? That's
1: that's right. So another big kind of piece for me and a big interest for me um, in marine science is how do you kind of be more proactive? How do you restore habitats? How do you rehabilitate habitats? you know, there's a long history of people in conservation managing things, and I wouldn't call it a more passive way, but just kind of managing people's activities. So I think we now need to get in there and we need to fix stuff. And as you say, you know, rewilding, restoring, rehabilitating systems. And so that's a big part of what we're trying to do for our urban marine science in projects like the World Harbor Project.
0: Um. So for these systems that are being restored close to cities and in places that have got lots of high use, what does restoration or rehabilitation look like? What kinds of species benefit? Um, what's the things people can expect to see in those you know, backyards they have in the cities?
1: Yeah, it really depends on how degraded the system is. Um, and you know, in some instances, systems those urban systems are so degraded that you just have to do things like fix water quality before you can get in there and do re- other rehabilitation or restoration. But you know, with that caveat, uh, there are probably three major kinds of um, approaches that we take. One is restoring habitat forming organisms. So just like on land you know, and forests, in marine and coastal environments, the habitats are often determined structurally by things like kelp and corals and oyster reefs and mangroves. So we think that if we can restore those habitat forming organisms you go a long way towards restoring that system overall just the way you do if you put a eucalyptus forest back on a you know what is a degraded grassland. So that's one thing. The other thing that we really are focused on is how to build um, infrastructure so artificial structures better. So there's no way that you get away from all the urban sprawl as we call it that includes the urban marine sprawl So we build seawalls and we build jetties and coastal development and cooling systems All this stuff that we put in the water So how can you build that in a way that enhances biodiversity enhances ecosystem function? encourages colonization of different kinds of critters and then the third um, is a way of using organisms to do things like rehabilitate sediments you know, that are contaminated by different kinds of pollutants and the like. So, so we think that all three of those approaches um, are suitable for urban marine environments. And we do all three. We restore kelp, we restore oyster beds, we build more biodiverse seawalls, we try and use snails and shellfish to um, rehabilitate marine sediments.
0: How long can it take from starting these kind of programs? Some of these cities have had and harbours have had human impacts really embedded in, in those places for a really long time. So as you start to implement these different solutions, how long can it take before people will start to see, you know, different communities, um, organisms they haven't ever seen before?
1: So it's, it's uh, an issue of scale really. So it, and both uh, over time and over space. So you can do small scale things in terms of space, you know, pretty quickly in a matter of years, but the changes in those urban habitats, you know, happened over decades, if not centuries. And so to to restore them to a more ecologically functioning and, and a system that has greater biodiversity, also takes years, decades, hopefully not centuries. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, our experience with some of our, our, our key projects, um, like Operation Crayweed, you know, after seven or eight years, we're now getting you know substantial return at the hectare scale of um, kelp systems. Living seawalls project. You know we're scaling up from tens to hundreds of meters of seawalls now. After five or six years of that program, so it takes time and it takes things to recolonize and rebuild.
0: In in the time frame that it's taken to cause that degradation, though, being able to talk about recovery um, within something like five years is is quite amazing. Really, to think that you can actually make a difference and scale up that quickly after so long of of having um, change and degradation happening. Um,
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think it's really encouraging and I think it reflects a worldwide trend. I mean, there are now a bunch of, you know, restoration, rehabilitation projects in the general sense that are starting to address the problem at scale. And so, you know, there's a long history of doing the science in some of these projects, but now as people finally turn their attention to, all right, let's get out there and try and fix stuff for real now, um, you're, you're right. You know, It's scaling up relatively rapidly. It's also, you know, just to add one comment, it's also a change in perspective. I think there are a bunch of scientists who have been involved in that work who are now really ready to push fixing things, you know, trying to do things at real world scale. And it's a little bit of a mind shift for a lot of people, including me.
0: Uh, that change in scale is a really important one um, because it means so many people can see what's happening so in places like Sydney right here you know where you've been working for such a long time what are some of the solutions that people can go out and see now?
1: Um, You know probably our two most substantial programs um, are Operation Crayweed as I mentioned um, before so along the coast of Sydney about 70 kilometers of a a major habitat forming kelp, big brown seaweed, um, disappeared in the 70s and 80s, almost certainly because of bad water quality. Um, That water quality has been um, enhanced now and some engineering solutions um, applied. So we've started putting kelp back in and people can get in the water places like North Bondi and Malabar and a number of other sites along the Sydney coastline and see kelp forests, forests that are there that weren't there five years ago. Uh, yeah, which is kind of cool. And so we, you know, we do a bunch of trying to connect with the community to to help them understand that and to expose them to that and encourage people to get in the water and see the transformation of their coasts.
0: That's, um, that's really interesting because then that improves people's connection to the marine space, right? They can, if they want to be in there, it's clean, it's beautiful, they can see new things, and then that has a flow on effect that they value it more. Is that right? I
1: hope so. I mean, I think it, it has seemed to have a big effect. You know, A, it's, it's not the doom and environmental gloom that you often hear about, you know, it's a positive thing. And you can point to it and people can see it. You know, it's not some concept that people are trying to wrap their heads around. It's a thing. You know, here's a here's an underwater forest that wasn't there before. Um, and similarly for one of the other projects I mentioned, living seawalls, you know, you can go out uh, in the harbor and see sea wa- seawalls with our habitat enhancing tiles on them and see that things are growing on there in ways that they weren't growing on the original sea balls. Um, So yeah, you know, people are visual creatures, right? And to be able to show them stuff um, is really important and I think really helps get the message across.
0: Yeah. Um, you mentioned before like some of the doom and gloom around what's what's happening in our marine ecosystems and and some of the places that are really heavy, heavily impacted by change. If we can return nature and rewild some of these urbanised habitats and these places that have had such a huge impact for so long, is that an example that we can look to when we try and restore other systems? I mean, if we can do it in these places that have you know, coming from such a bad start point. Does that mean we have a bit more hope for what we can do to some of these more remote systems?
1: You know, I hope so. Um, You know, it's a big effort and it requires substantial resources and substantial effort by people at all levels. Um, But you do hope that if, you know, you can show evidence of restoring habitats that, you know, historically have really been quite degraded, like in cities, that other habitats um, can also be enhanced. You know, again, for most of them, it's an issue of scale. You know, at what scale can you have an effect? And you know, as you would know well from your work on corals, you know, there's a lot of activity going on in the Great Barrier Reef these days. It is confronting exactly these issues. You know, what are the best approaches? What are the best techniques? How do you scale up in these open marine systems? Um, You know, there are certainly lessons we can take from the work that we have done, but um, I would also say that we take a lot of lessons from things like terrestrial restoration, which, you know, I think is arguably a little bit further advanced than than our marine
0: systems. that's That's a really good point that, you know, we've already done a lot of these things in terrestrial systems. What do you think are some of the biggest lessons we can learn from what's been a success in terrestrial systems that we can then apply in marine ecosystems?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, So some of them are the notion that, or a big part of one, I'll just kind of stumble around this for a little while until I think of what I actually want to say. Um, So I think one, one major lesson is to think carefully about what your expectations are. So in the last 10 or 15 years in terrestrial restoration, this whole notion of novel habitats has come about. And so people have come to the conclusion that it's very difficult to restore habitats even on land to what they were 50 or 100 years ago. So you can restore a bunch of the key components, but you're not necessarily restoring them to natural systems. Um, and quote natural systems. And so I think that's a lesson for us in marine systems. You know, what is a system that we're trying to get back to? We want a more functioning system. We want a more biodiverse system, um, but you have to think carefully about what that means. That's one thing. Um, the second big message is that large-scale restoration projects require, um, you know, multiple drivers, multiple people. You need to get scientists, practitioners, the community, government, you know, all lined in a way that lets you do things at scale. And so we've tried to do that, you know, with some of our projects. So that's a big message as
0: well. Um, you mentioned earlier people can now get into the water and, and see kelp forests in places that they wouldn't have seen them for for maybe 40, 50 years. Um, people getting into the water and appreciating these places is really important. What else can they do in, in their day-to-day lives if they're really enthusiastic about seeing this rewilding and return to nature happening? What what else can they do? I
1: think a really key component is for them to make use of the resources that are available to learn more about their local marine environment. Um, you know, one of the things that we learned when we first started doing some of the kelp projects is that half the people we interviewed in structured surveys that we did thought the dominant organisms under the water on Sydney's coast were coral reefs, <laughs> right? And it's just not correct. It's kelp yeah. forests and other things. And so I think, you know, you know I think information and awareness is. A really good thing. So just learn more about the marine environment. Um, the second thing is, if you know, if you've taken that stuff and you are concerned and you do understand, you know, do all the things that active citizens do. You know, get involved with um, talking to the government and communicating with the government to, you know, try and convince them that these are important things to do. Be active in the local community. Um, either through community groups or even helping with the science. You know, we certainly have had community groups helping us plant our kelp forests and we have volunteers that put living seawalls on uh, on the shoreline and, you know, lots of other activities. So there are lots of ways to get involved and also lots of ways to become aware of our local environment.
0: Nice. Um, your background is also marine biotechnology which I, probably a lot of people haven't heard a lot about. Can you, can you give, um, give them a quick um, introduction to what, what marine biotechnology is?
1: Sure. It's just biotechnology using marine organisms. So biotechnology is you using living critters or the products of living critters um, to achieve technological aims. So, you know, probably the easiest entry point or the most common entry point into that is you know making pharmaceuticals through the products of living organisms you know so aspirin originally came from a tree and you know there are lots of other examples like that um, you know and so drugs from the sea was a big thing for many years you know can we find unusual compounds from marine organisms Um, that can solve various kinds of um, diseases or other medical challenges. So the thing that we did um, was along those lines. We found a compound from uh, a seaweed that we had studied for a long time. And that seaweed used those compounds to prevent colonization of its surface because that's bad. Um, But it turns out that it does it in a very specific way. So um, it has evolved this compound that interferes with bacterial communication so bugs bacteria talk to one another and just like a nervous system you can use a drug to interfere with that communication and so we had a whole class of novel antibacterials um, that uh, we discovered from the seaweed
0: Um, and is that have we learned from that in terms of how we understand microbial communication between you know communication between microbes and plants, has that helped change how we understand that system more broadly?
1: Yeah, in a big way. So, I mean, when we first started doing this now, goodness, 25 years ago, um, it, uh, we knew very little about that whole system and the whole notion that something as simple as a bacterium could talk to its colleagues, <laughs> um, in this case by chemical signals, you know, was a very unusual and very controversial idea but it also turns out it's incredibly widespread and incredibly important for the way that bacteria go about their business and you know the way to think about it is if you're a bacteria and you're trying to colonize a surface or you're trying to infect a host because you're a pathogen if there's just one of you doing your own thing it's not going to have much effect but if there are a million of you and you can all communicate with each other and you can coordinate your activities it becomes way more effective So that's really uh, appears to be why bacteria have evolved these communication systems. And they're active in agricultural systems and in human pathogens and in the way, and in symbiosis between bacteria and higher organisms. So it is potentially a whole other approach to uh, controlling bacteria. Um, without necessarily killing them but by controlling the way that they communicate with each other.
0: So uh, a lot of your research is really about the building blocks of how organisms interact with each other and that gives you a really interesting lens to see all the way from those building blocks up to how marine ecosystems function and what's happening in those systems um, as they degrade or as, as we rebuild them um do you think that's given you a particular insight as well into some of the the challenges of restoring um, restoring habitats in degraded places um I think so
1: um y- you know I do view ecosystems as a collection of interacting species and um, and I guess that's at the basis, I think, of the functioning of most ecosystems. And so if you understand how those species are interacting with each other, and, and of course responding to environmental drivers like you know, temperature and currents and the like, um, hopefully that leads you to the capacity to for solutions, which you know, as we were discussing earlier, is exactly where I've ended up with a bunch of the rehabilitation work.
0: Yeah. So, Peter, we when we go out into these marine spaces, we, you know, often we see this, like you say, this forest, if it's kelp, it's underwater forest, or the, these huge systems with so many different pieces of the puzzle. And, and you go out and you see um, right down to the, the chemical signals that cause those pieces of the puzzle to fit together. Uh What do you think about that? What do you think about the lens that we see um, how ecosystems function or how marine systems work through?
1: Yeah, so um, I I am interested in species interactions because I think that is a big part of it. You know, who's eating whom, who's competing with whom, who's infecting whom. Um, And I guess the overall lens is very much a kind of – quite an engineering perspective, but there are a bunch of interacting pieces um, and they, and the things that they do are the drivers and that result in that overall system. And so as one example, you know, we or you know I and my colleagues have studied um, predators, herbivores and um, disease a lot in these particular systems. So things that can kill um, some of the major habitat forming organisms like kelp. And it speaks to a whole um, conceptual framework for how marine systems work, which is sometimes called top-down ecology. And it's really about um, um, one overarching framework or kind of conceptual overlay for how these systems work, um, views things like predators and herbivores and disease as, as a major driver of how these systems are structured and how they function. Um, So you can think about it, if you take away cows in a field, then you get a very different system in that field than you do with cows. Um, Some classic examples in terrestrial systems, if you take away wolves in Yellowstone, you get a completely different system that cascades all the way down to the grasses because the wolves no longer eat the elk and the elk overgraze the grasses. So, you know, view of marine systems is very similar. If you take away the big predators or if disease sweeps through, then it all cascades down to affect the entire system. And so certainly the lens that I view marine systems is affected by that kind of perspective because I've worked on those kinds of species interactions for most of my life.
0: You've mentioned disease a couple of times and uh, something that's been Uh, really at the forefront of research at least in the last decade has been new or novel diseases in marine organisms and marine systems so we've seen places like coral reefs with really big disease outbreaks loss of sea urchin populations but um, seaweeds and kelps are also impacted by disease outbreaks as, as well aren't they?
1: Yeah, they absolutely are. And, you know, as you say, disease is a little bit of a new thing, or at least in the last decade or so for marine systems, just because we didn't have the tools to really explore them. You know, as you know, in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, there's been this explosion in gene sequencing technology. It started out with the Human Genome Project, but it's now applied everywhere in an environmental context in the ocean. So we actually know what's out there for the first time, ever really, um, and so we can start to characterize pathogens, we can start to look at the functioning of those pathogens, why they're infective, and do the epidemiology of seaweed populations or coral populations and, and look at their effects. And it turns out that there are big effects, that in fact, there's a lot of disease in marine systems that's causing a lot of damage in ways that we really didn't understand when we didn't have the tools to investigate them.
0: Oh. So, what kind of diseases are impacting these underwater forests and underwater plants that you study? Are they are they driven by changes in the environment? Are we seeing, um, for example, in some of these systems that you that you're trying to rehabilitate close to cities, are, is there a, a disease link to, with pollution?
1: Yeah, there seems to be. So, you know, there's a general theory around disease, and you know, you can probably identify. it it yourself if you get a cold you know when things get stressed they tend to get sick Um, and so there are a bunch of kinds of stresses in the marine environment so around cities you get water quality issues you get pollution and then of course there are issues about rising temperature and rising acidity in oceans globally and so both temperature in particular and water quality seem to be drivers of disease so in our underwater forest around sydney we get something um stipe rot, you know, which is, you know, a little bit like foot rot. It's also a fungus. Um, but it attacks the the um stem, if you will, of uh the kelp that we've been trying to restore. And it softens and starts to break apart under waves and the like. Um, And it's it occurs up and down the coast, but seems to be particularly common in places where there's a heavy urban signal. Um, And it kills the plants. Um, Other other pathogens seem to be more common when you start to heat up the water and you start to see things like bleaching of kelp in the same way you see bleaching of corals. Um, You may want to ask another question about this but I'll go on to say one of the things that we're starting to learn um, that's changing our view of the way that diseases work in marine systems is, although there are some reasonably specific pathogens and specific diseases like this stipe rot, this fungus of uh, our local kelp, crayweed, um, a lot of it seems to be kind of your normal average run-of-the-mill bacterium that when the host gets stressed Or when the waters warm up, suddenly they become pathogenic. That is, suddenly they become a disease organism, whereas they weren't before. So there's this whole really um, tie-in between environmental stress and bacteria becoming disease organisms that we're just starting to figure out.
0: That uh, links really interestingly to your, your research in chemical ecology as well because what you're talking about is that interaction between the bacteria and the, the plant that they live on and the bacteria and other bacteria as well and how they communicate. Um, is this about them seeing signs of, um, of being able to attack uh, an organism that maybe can't fight as well?
1: Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting area. Um, so, just you know, a brief background. So, the world is awash in chemical signals, both on land and in the sea. And um, for those of you who think you've never encountered a, a chemical defense or chemical signal, anytime you taste a spice or a herb that um, has an interesting flavor or a strong flavor or a pungent smell, that's there because that plant evolved it as a defense against bacteria or herbivores or something. So they're everywhere. Um, so um, so yeah, so environmental stress seems to play a, a real role in whether or not organisms can chemically defend themselves against things like pathogens or consumers. Um, and it can go a bunch of different ways. Sometimes it stress plants are better at um, producing chemicals. So a classic example is for wine. So, you know, the best grapes, the tastiest grapes, um, come from stressed vines. And the thinking there is that um, when a plant gets stressed, it really has to defend itself because if it's gonna start losing more tissue to bacteria or to herbivores, it's just gonna die. So it just invests a ton of energy into these chemical defenses. Um, but sometimes they can be so stressed that they simply don't have the wherewithal to produce those defenses. and they become real targets for things like disease or herbivores or other, as we call them, natural enemies.
0: Nice, is that also why it's so important in some of these restoration and rehabilitation programs to to look at multiple, um, multiple arms of attack, I guess, a- back against the degraded system, not just the the replanting of one thing, but the improving of the water quality and removing of other stresses. Does that help to increase the potential for that program to be successful?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, particularly in urban systems, as we were talking about, some urban systems are just so degraded that until you fix some of the basic environmental characteristics, water quality, sediment flow, that kind of thing. You can't do anything. You know, you can't put those organisms back in there because they're just not going to survive. And then you also, once you do start to put things back in, you have to manage harvesting and you have to manage um, people interacting with those systems. And that's a whole nother piece as well. So, yeah, absolutely. There are multiple approaches to restoring these systems along um, our coasts or out in the open ocean.
0: So you've spent your entire career really looking at marine ecosystems all the way from the, the chemicals that that plants produce through to how the entire system works. Coming back to you, um, is there a particular place that really influenced you to start this lifelong dedication to studying marine systems?
1: Um so I've I've thought about this question before, and there are probably three signature moments that
0: yeah.
1: kind of helped me end up where I am. Um, so the first was when I was a teenager, and we went on a family holiday to uh, Honolulu in Hawaii, and we ended up at a place called Hanama Bay, um, which had a bunch of reef fish, and I spent pretty much the entire holiday, entire holiday snorkeling with those fish. Um, if You were to ask me now what that place is like, I would say it's one of the most degraded reefs I know of (laughs) that still actually has some fish. Um, You know, it's right next to Honolulu, it's very heavily impacted. But at the time, it was the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen. And it was really maybe my first intense um, introduction to the wonders of the marine environment. Um, Then two other things. One was as a college student, a university student in Maryland, where I discovered marine invertebrates for the first time Mm. and discovered that there were all these aliens living on our planet that I'd never seen before. And they were just amazing. You know, worms and snails and crabs and little shrimp and jellyfish and just all this weird stuff that most people never see. And I had mostly not seen until then. Um, and then a couple of years after that, I started doing my PhD in California and um, I met giant kelp forests for the first time. And that pretty much, um, I think, did it for me. Um, and, you know, I've worked most of my life in kelp systems of one sort or another because um, I just think they're gorgeous. They can be cold, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. they're gorgeous. Um, Do you yeah.
0: have a favorite kelp system here in Australia?
1: Favorite kelp system, um, you, you know, there's, um, Australia is remarkable and that the coastline from um, kind of Northern New South Wales all the way up to the middle of Western Australia is dominated by one species of kelp, um, the common kelp or Colonia radiata. And it's probably the largest coastal marine ecosystem in the world. Um, and so I think I have a lot of affection for that because for the last 30 years of my life, those are the systems that I've worked in.
0: Nice. Do you think that's a massive system? That That's all the bottom half of Australia the whole way around. Mm. Are, we, are we doing enough to appreciate what we have in that system and protect it?
1: Well, absolutely not, I think. (laughs) You know, it's a little bit self-serving because those are the systems I love. But um, no, I think that um, much of the focus for Australia's coasts are on coral reefs and, you know, places like the Great Barrier Reef. And those are incredibly important systems and no question that they're at risk. Um, but as you say, in the lower half of Australia, there are 7,000 kilometers of a contiguous ecosystem, um, and it's very little known relative to a bunch of other systems like the reefs. And because people don't get in the water as much in those systems, they just don't quite understand the magnitude of it, the significance of it, and the extent to which those systems are threatened. Um, so I think we could certainly do a lot more, and um, you know we're working on that.
0: Nice. that's fantastic. That's um, that's really amazing when you put it in that context of this this big stands of of kelp that span all of this coastline and. We just don't really know enough about it, and um, we know so much about other places. If um, if there's some students out there listening to this who who want to think about a future in understanding this, you know, huge underwater forest Australia has right in front of it. What do you think are the two most important things we have to know?
1: Uh, we have to know uh, the rate at which they're diminishing because they are. There's good evidence from New South Wales, from West Australia, from South Australia, from Tasmania that we're losing our kelp forests. So we really need to understand the rate at which they're disappearing and, and the associate mechanisms that are causing that decline. Um, and then the second thing we really need to know is we need to know how to future proof those systems. So we know systems are changing and are continue to change. Um, We have locked in, you know, the next several hundred years of ocean warming and ocean acidification and increased coastal development, um, which are just going to increase the impact on those kelp systems. So how do we make more thermally tolerant kelp? how do we do the kinds of things we've been doing in Sydney where we restore kelp forests on urban coasts how do we future proof our marine ecosystems it applies as much to the kelp forests of southern Australia as to all the other systems in Australia and globally the world is a changing place and we need to respond to that
0: that's um that's an incredible scale to have to think about restoring and future proofing a forest if you know, if we were talking about that on land, that that's a massive undertaking and to try and do that um, underwater is quite an incredible goal and endeavour. Thank you so much for talking, uh, talking to us today on the podcast and um, inspiring hopefully a whole community of people out there to get involved and um, a next generation of scientists as well to come and answer those big questions. Thanks so much, Peter.
1: My pleasure, Tracy. Great to talk.
0: Thank you for listening to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at events.unsw.edu.au where you'll find all the photographs from this podcast series featuring the beautiful places that we've been discussing and the organisms found in these blue spaces.